Father, as we turn to your holy word, we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the author of these pages, even as the Father is indeed the author of our salvation, and that by these means, that is the Trinity applying the work of redemption to our souls, Jesus, God the Son, has purchased our redemption, planned from before time began in the heart of the Father, applied to our souls by the work of the Holy Spirit, calling us out from deadness, our transgressions and sins, and awakening us to newness of life. Lord, I pray that the sound of your voice through the proclamation of your word would be heeded by us, your sheep, and that the voice of the good shepherd would be proclaimed in our ears this day. I pray that the Spirit would use the proclamation of your holy scriptures to encourage our souls, to ground us in the faith, to make us strong and confident in the calling that you have prepared for us, and also to testify through our application of these very words to a world yet lost and dying, that there is hope and eternal life in Christ alone. We thank you for the message of Scripture ringing true from the first page of Genesis to the close of the revelation of John. We thank you that in between is the sufficient words of life, a sufficient rule and guide for us to understand you and to live in light of your truth. And I pray that we would grow in our understanding and in the proclamation of the same as a result of processing your scriptures this day. Lastly, we pray if there are any in the hearing of your word who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, the only true, famous, glorious one worthy of our praise and adoration, we pray that you would move the heart of the lost and the unbeliever to repent and turn from their sins and to place faith in Christ alone for salvation from now and to eternity that they may soon join us in lifting up songs of praise to the only one worthy of our adoration and songs such as we've sung this day and such as we read in Psalm 115. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great gift and glorious privilege it is to open up the Holy Scriptures and to gather as His saints and to consider these eternal words of life. This morning, the title of my message is The Glory-Worthy Name. There is only, ultimately, one glory-worthy name in all the universe, and we have sung of Him today, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord Almighty, Yahweh is His name in our text here. The one God, from beginning to end, is the one worthy of our adulation, the one worthy of the songs that are recorded in the Scriptures, particularly in the Psalter, in Psalms 1 through 150. We've been going through one psalm a month for some years, which has led us to Psalm 115 this morning. And today, our, my goal in preaching is to show how this psalm features the glory of the Lord and also calls us to acknowledge that glory in our own worship. More precisely, my goal in preaching today is to exhort us, the church, to magnify the Lord in defiance of idolatrous propaganda to glorify, to magnify the Lord in defiance of idolatrous propaganda, claims to the contrary, in the context of an unbelieving culture. That's the context of Psalm 115, and it is a context in which we find ourselves often in our day. Therefore, this is a relevant song for us, to be sure. Out of reverence for God's Scripture, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? Listen in your hearing as the Word of God is proclaimed to you in Psalm 115, verses 1 through 18, here is the word of God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. 
for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? O God, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has blessed us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. We are in a set of six psalms. This is number three. And as we've referenced twice already, they're called the Hallel Psalms. In the history of the people of God, these six psalms were used specifically, especially for the glory of the Lord, exalting the Lord, for His deliverance of His people from bondage in ancient Egypt. Thus, the Hallel Psalms, meaning praise, or Egyptian Hallel Psalms, is the title given to this section of the Psalter. These psalms set forth a clear perspective, and Psalm 115 is especially poignant in this regard, a clear perspective for the discerning. The logic of the author goes something like this. If Yahweh, that is the high and holy revered covenant name of the Lord, denoted by Lord in your translation there, I trust in all capital letters. If Yahweh is creator and ruler of all reality from the heavens to the earth, when you hear heavens, you can think of realms beyond our tangible grasp. So if Yahweh is creator of all reality, including that which we can't understand because it's beyond our experience, to the earth, the domain in which we interact, the most commonly the domain of human beings, how are we to view our relationship to Him? And how are we to weigh the claims of His enemies? If Yahweh is creator of all reality, how are we to then process Claims to the contrary and our relationship to Him. Psalm 115 answers these questions. The psalmist's logic, to use in a, a kind of heady word, academic word, philosophically charged word, the psalmist's logic is transcendental. Transcendental just means above or overarching. He answers these questions, the psalmist does, from an overarching vantage point, from the big picture perspective. As created beings... We can only exploit created resources to advance the foolishness of idolatry. That phrase is taken as a conclusion from Psalm 115. Listen again this sentence. As created beings, we can only exploit created resources to advance the foolishness of idolatry. In other words, in order to defy God, we have to use something that God gave us in the first place. If we say that God does not exist... We say that with the vocal cords that he engineered and placed in your throat. If we write on a piece of paper that I think I have an idea that's better than the Bible, we do so 
with a product made from trees that he spoke into being from Genesis chapter 1. You see? It is the fool who does not realize the very resources he uses to propagate his rebellion were given to him by the God that he denies. And this is the conclusion of this psalm, and this is what this satire even that is employed means to convey. As created beings, we are limited to that which God has given us. We cannot construct, conceive, or promote anything without commandeering, stealing, created resources granted to us by the steadfast love and faithfulness of the one true sovereign. Every notion is inherently and inextricably dependent on the faculties and provisions granted us by the maker of heaven and earth. Every idea, every pursuit, every ambition, every goal, every thought conceived in the heart of man is absolutely dependent, and you cannot separate it from the faculties, our ability to reason, think, and act, and so forth, and the provisions, the material realm in which He grants us even oxygen to breathe, food to sustain us with calories, and so forth. All of this is granted us by the Maker of heaven and earth. As such, every attempt to deny, to subvert, or to supplant, that means to replace, the Almighty only ends up testifying to our folly and His authority. Isn't that something? God is so amazing that He uses even the rebellion of His enemies as proof of His own existence. This is how God gets the last laugh in every single situation. God will get the last laugh in spite of our culture's rebellion against Him right now. Little do the ungodly know that when they use their voice that God gave them to testify that He doesn't exist, they only broadcast their own foolishness. Psalm 115 serves to rouse the people of God from the slumbers of discouragement. Have you grown discouraged because it seems we live in a day where the propaganda of the rebellious uh, just absolutely saturates information outlets and our own souls if we let it? Well, let Psalm 115 rouse you from the slumbers of discouragement to wake you up unto the praise because God has called and will call the bluff of the ungodly. <clears throat> this is similar, this language in Psalm 115 is similar to Isaiah 44. I'm thinking specifically of 9 through 20. And here the prophet uses similar ironic and satirical language to expose the deluded heart of the unbeliever. And this unbelieving heart cannot so much as admit the absurdity of burning half a tree for fuel and then using the good part to make an idol to worship. That's a picture of idolatry and its absurdity in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. And that picture of absurdity is echoed in our text as well. Now, as we see this, we uh, might also illustrate further the usefulness of Psalm 115 by referencing a couple historical examples. That is to say, there's context in history, even in the scriptures, which illustrate the value of Psalm 115 during trying times. Now, the one I'm, two I'm thinking of in preparation for this message, the first is in 2 Kings 18. The, next, the other one I'll reference later is in 1 Kings 18. In 2 Kings 18, I don't know that we have time to turn there, but just to briefly give you an overview, the Assyrians are on the march. They're the world empire to be feared at the time. And there's a counselor, cupbearer. It's called, his name is, uh, it, the term for him, his office is Rabshakeh in the text. I don't know if you recall this from 2 Kings 18. But this Rabshakeh, 
is uh, quite the uh, persuader. And he comes with his message of despair as his armies approach Jerusalem. And he broadcasts his message on the periphery. And the people guarding the gate say, hey, why don't you speak in, uh, in a different language so the Judeans don't you know, uh, get freaked out by what you're saying. He said, no, I'm speaking in the common language on purpose. Don't let Hezekiah tell you that your God is strong enough to deliver you from this army right here. After all, what did the gods of nation A do to spare them? And then he you know, boasts of the exploits of the Assyrian army conquering an, another neighboring nation. And then he lists off about six nations and said, and get, offers this as proof that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, will no more help to deliver the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem than any of these others, right? And so the people tear their clothes, literally in anguish. That used to be an expression of deep and abiding angst and anguish. And so a messenger goes to Hezekiah with torn clothes and says, the armies of our enemies are bold enough to defy us and the living God. What are we to do? The king himself, Hezekiah, tears his clothes as well. And then he goes before the Lord. He does the right thing. And he learns that the propaganda, that that language of defiance, that brash denial of the sovereignty of Yahweh is just that. Empty words spoken from the throat of one created by God, given grace to exist in spite of his sin, who will soon be destroyed. To the tune of, if I remember right, 175,000 dead overnight, when a single angel of the Lord slaughters all God's enemies. Incredible. Now, if that doesn't encourage your soul, I don't know what would. But was God's word any less true before he intervened on behalf of the people than it was after he fulfilled his word in that evident display of sovereignty? No. God's people had just as much reason to place their faith in the one true God before he intervened than after God's ways. And how he does so is often a mystery. Nevertheless, we can confess with the psalmist that he is Lord. The whole scale of salt. Now, let me ask this question. What of our day? We could ask it this way. Do we live amongst a culture steeped in brash defiance against their creator? And I submit that the whole scale of salt on the created order itself in the thinking and the values of our culture is evidence of idolatrous propaganda blasted through the loudspeaker of our culture. We have our own rabshikas, officers of the enemy, who stand at the city gates and say, um, there's 72 genders, they yell through their megaphone, or whatever other absurdity of the idolatrous notions that there are today. They only can find hope through the collective by the promises and provision that government supplies. You know, uh, you can find your identity elsewhere than Christianity. Christianity is basically hate speech and intolerance. These popular messages in the bullhorn of cultural apostasy outside the periphery. And as we hear them, we might succumb to the slumber of discouragement. But if we are tempted to do so, Psalm 115 has a potential to wake us up. In spite of this whole-scale assault on the created order, it's nothing more than evidence of idolatrous propaganda. And Psalm 115 reminds us that the Word of God is louder still. I don't care how many Facebook followers the most influential God-hater has on the Internet, the Word of God is louder than that voice, and don't you doubt it. The Word of God will remain, and it will accomplish everything God sends, to achieve, sends it to achieve. The grass withers, the flowers fade. 
Things trend on the internet overnight and are forgotten next week. The word of the Lord remains forever. And so to the word of the Lord return. Under this heading, creation addressed. I'm sorry, that was last week's message or last month's message. Under this heading, the threefold entreaty of Psalm 115. So there's an entreaty or there's a call to action, if you will, in Psalm 115, threefold. The first is a call to glorify. The second is a call to trust. And the third is a call to bless. A call to glorify directed towards God. God, glorify yourself. The psalmist entreats him. Secondly, directed towards us. O people of God, trust in the Lord. A call to trust. And thirdly, again, directed towards us as a people of God, a call to bless. Bless the Lord, O his people. Threefold entreaty of Psalm 115. First of all, verses 1 through 8, a call to glorify. Note verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Right from the beginning, what would you say is the author's priority? Our security, our hope, our fame, our renown, our significance, our meaning, our purpose. Is that the priority of Psalm 115? No. Right from the beginning, the priority is established, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. That is a profound reality from the first stanza of this song. And it cuts directly against the impulses in the culture in which we live. How many of us exist and some to our shame even embrace our religious affiliations, not for the glory of God, but indeed for our own blessing, benefit, and glory in some way. The Word of God commands us to repent of this impulse and to instead return to the priority of all Scripture, all history, all revelation, all reality, the name, the fame, the renown, the significance, the influence of the Lord, Yahweh, the Creator of heaven and earth. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. It's interesting here as well that the glory of God and the steadfast love and faithfulness of God are directly connected. And this also cuts against the grain of most assumptions these days, does it not? In other words, for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, the psalmist proclaims, glorify yourself. This is uh, counterintuitive to us because of the humanistic heresies that plague our modern ears. Does this sound foreign to you? The notion that God serving his own glory is indeed an expression of love for humanity. God serving his own glory and love for humanity are not at odds with one another. Another way to say it, it is in the best interest of you and I, if you are in Christ today, it is in the best interest of the people of God that the name of God be glorified. 115.1, to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. In recent years, books have come out that betray the wickedness of a heart who prefers to have a different Bible than the one God wrote for us. A book, a book along these lines, as I understand it, it's been a while since I reviewed I haven't read it cover to cover, but I've de- interacted with it enough to know that it falls into this heretical category. It's called Love Wins by an author named Rob Bell. And basically, the premise of the book is to reimagine ultimate uh, responsibility for sin in light of Rob's view of the love of God. I remember listening to a sermon similar along these lines. The love of God as the chief value and priority as we conceive and imagine and prefer it has the potential, if we don't filter our thinking through the word of God, of distorting 
who God actually is. And this is a glory problem. If you put yourself first and God second, then love for you means God must sacrifice some of his glory or some of the Bible needs to change to what you prefer. If God is all about elevating, loving, and if he's about the glory and the renown and the future of human beings, then I really can't reconcile that with the notion of hell. Let me put it this way to you. Before God is loving, he is holy. That is to say, his holiness and love are not in conflict, but his holiness is, if you will, a preeminent attribute, which... Uh, is overarching and qualifies all the rest. Another way to phrase it, God is never loving at the expense of His holiness. What does holiness mean? It means the preservation of the perfections, the holy set apart, the justice of God, the purity of God, the uncompromised beauty, power, perfection, holiness, and glory of God. That is His holiness. The reason God is loving to you is because a perfect, sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, died to pay the penalty that your sin deserved. And if you don't accept that penalty, God's holiness will be expressed to you in a different way. His wrath. This is the message of truth throughout all the pages of Scripture, and it is the true gospel. There is only one way to escape the wrath of God and to receive the glorious, steadfast faithfulness of His love, and that's as if His holiness is preserved by His Son dying in our place. And in this way, God's name is renowned, His glory is preserved, and He is proven steadfastly loving and faithful to us. What the psalmist is asking for is a Messiah. He's saying the way that this prayer, in other words, this entreaty can be answered, O Lord, to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and faithfulness is the gospel, is the a gift of Jesus Christ, entering into history, taking on flesh, the incarnation. This is how the entreaty of Psalm 115 comes to pass. Comes to pass where God's glory is preserved and His steadfast love is extended to His own. Don't substitute and be very careful in our modern age to discern when promises of renown and glory for us or an identity with other things is substituted for the Lord's glory as our chief and highest goal and aim. The confession gets it right when it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. As I judge it, and I believe that is consistent with Psalm 115.1. If you find your identity or your chief end in anything less or anything other, it is compromise. It is idolatry, as we go on to understand in Psalm 115. Secondly, let's learn something about the free will of God, shall we? We're very concerned about our own free will. <clears throat> oh, we had, you know... I'm an autonomous creature. I have the ability to make my own decisions. I'm the captain of my own destiny. You shouldn't uh, have to bow before the freedom and the decisions that I make move over world. You know, here comes the radical individual, autonomous, self-important human being. This is basically the attitude of our, uh, once again, rebellious culture. Against this, though, Psalm 115 proclaims the truth. Verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? Note verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There is, only one per, there is only one being, if you will, God himself, who can do all that he pleases, who has the power to enact all his holy will. And he does so through his providence. He does so in salvation. And it, he is the one who inhabits the realms beyond our tangible grasp. The God of the heavens has the freest will of all, if you will. That is to say that God and His will indeed is the pathway for history, and He is the true sovereign. 
Now, we'd like to think of ourselves as being able to be exalted to compete with such a thing. And we resent the fact that anyone would stand in the way of what we would prefer. This does not change the fact that our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. The power of those, or a, a true, this is true power as opposed to the absurd claims that the idolatrous put forth. Uh, the modern, we're in our modern era, which really stands upon autonomy, that means the self-rule or the self as sovereign. There's only one who can truly accomplish all that he pleases, and that would be the absolute sovereign. Now, uh, recently, you know, a, a common uh, bad guy in the conservative worldview is Bill Gates. And why is this the case? Well, I, I'm no fan of Bill Gates. And well, Bill Gates is an example of someone who has a lot of resources to do what he prefers with. And so he has suggested a number of things. Of course, his foundation has tried to raise money to inoculate third world countries with, you know, debatable as to their effectiveness, in my view, um, whatever kinds of vaccines and so on and so forth. And Bill Gates seems to me has something of a Messiah complex. He's taken upon the burden of the salvation of the entire world from encroaching dangers such as the possibility of climate change destroying the future of human civilization. And I've heard him postulating things with other deep thinkers like shooting dust into the air to prevent sunlight from reaching the Earth's surface, lest we all be scorched in, some people say, 12 years. <laughs> well, anyways, in the instance of a man like this, what you have is a worldview that is not in concert with the Word of God and a lot of power to do something about it. But we learned something recently today, or we learned something recently, maybe even this last week, and that is this, that in spite of all of the money that you can possibly imagine in the hands of one mere mortal, he may not even have the power to hold his marriage together. And this tells us one thing. We should not fear any competitor to the authority and power of a holy God. There is only one who absolutely can accomplish his will. Yes, there are those who God allows in his providence to do a lot of damage in the meantime, but our God is in the heavens. And if he doesn't want his heavens filled with chalk, he's not going to let any mere man do it. He can easily upset the life and the, uh, um, you know, by through one messy divorce, and pretty soon half your money goes to your spouse, so you can no longer launch your spaceships into the Earth's upper atmosphere to block the sun, the very thing that God created in the sky for the life and well-being of the future of humanity and so on. It's kind of a humorous example, but I think it stands as a helpful one to contrast the claims to authority and to do something uh, as grandiose as God in our day versus the one who truly is in the heavens and the only one who can truly do all that he pleases. Now, God uh, who does all that he pleases and the God who uh, glorifies himself in extending his steadfast love to his people, this is the God who the fool denies. Notice verse 4 and following. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths. Well, let me pause there. So under this call to glorify, we have this entreaty, Lord, glorify yourself. The psalmist recognizes that the Lord, His glory and His steadfast love are connected. The psalmist recognizes that God is worthy of this, of this glory. After all, He is the sovereign over all. He's the sovereign over heavens, the sovereign over the earth and all of history. And secondly, this call to glorify comes especially in light of the folly of idolatry. The pagan denies the glory and presence of God because their faculties have been disabled by idolatry. 
Now let's uh, see what he has to say about this. Now kids, I wonder if you can finish each phrase for me, all right? I think you'll get the picture as we move along. Kids, ready? So their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not what? speak. That's correct. Eyes but do not see. Very good. Shout it out. They have ears but do not They have noses but do not They have hands but do not Feet but do not That's very good. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Thank you, uh, children. And then notice verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Now, the opposing view to what the psalmist opens up with, the priority of the glory of God, advanced and understood, the opposite of that is the folly of idolatry. And in this uh, ironic and satirical language, he really illustrates how stupid exalting anything other than the Lord truly is. Their idols, speaking of the idolaters, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And then he goes on to say that all the faculties they claim to have indeed do not work. They're non-functional. And then this even more profound statement in verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That is to say, if you believe false claims to authority and what the world has to offer by way of a substitute to truth, you know, in today's popular views and values, you'll begin to lose your reasoning faculties. You'll begin to lose um, your ability to make coherent arguments. Your uh, faculties will be disabled and suspended and co-opted, and you will become a useless, uh, basically self-deluded uh, fool. The pagan denies the glory and presence of God because their faculties have been disabled by idolatry. Idols have no intrinsic value or agency. Their power is an illusion. And uh, in order to give the illusion of power, you know, the social systems put pressure on us and, and, and to try to basically affirm with everybody else that the idols are real. These idols appear powerful when many people worship them. But this is a fallacy. You think of one absurd guy in a trailer park that believes that aliens are going to abduct him so he sits out and, uh, you know, cross-legged in a crop circle that he made in his backyard day after day. Everybody, you know, drives, so it's getting towards evening, and there's Larry, you know, sitting in the crop circle at the back uh, 40 there. And what do you think of him as you drive by? <laughs> what a weirdo. What a kook. How many, how many drugs do you have to take before you come up with that idea? Now, what if Larry has 20 million followers on Facebook, and you drive home from work, and everybody you pass is sitting in a crop circle in their backyard, except for you when you get home. You see, the, it's no less absurd if everybody's doing it. But because of the way we're wired, the appearance and the persuasion of the idolatrous notion becomes more powerful to us if we're not discerning. Psalm 115 enters in this regard and says to us, in as many concepts, it doesn't matter how many people worship the same idol, it still cannot speak. A piece of wood still has no reasoning capacity. You know, Baal cannot walk anywhere. Astrith cannot smell a thing. And yet these people worship. Now here's a way to illustrate this. Elijah, you remember 1 Kings 18, 27 through 29? Let's turn there. This is the showdown between one prophet of God, and I used to think 450, but then you look closer to the text, there's like another 400, I believe, prophets of Astrith at this showdown as well. So what does that make, according to 
my uh, not-so-great math, 850. So you have one prophet versus 850. Now, to the undiscerning onlooker, you would think, well, majority probably rules in this case. Is the majority, <clears throat> is God a, a democratic God? It, can truth be changed by the will of the majority? Well, absolutely not. And to illustrate this foolishness, um, we have this account in 1 Kings. So you guys remember the story. The uh, wicked king at the time was Ahab. To find 1 Kings in my Bible here. The wicked king at the time was Ahab. Anyone remember his wife's name? It was Ahab and? Rahab. Ahab and Rahab. Uh, no, that, that would be cool, though, because the names rhyme. Uh, Jezebel, very good. Ahab and Jezebel, wicked rulers of the land. They had instituted idolatry. And so under the subsidization, if you will, so there was government subsidies um, for this false religion and uh, the Baals that would be the false gods of their neighbors and the Ashtoreth were uh, the abiding religion at this time because of the uh, social pressure put on the people and so on. Elijah picks a fight with them and he says, all right, let's have a showdown. And we pick up on this uh, passage in 1 Kings 18. Let's read beginning in verse 27. Now at noon, Elijah mocked them. Well, first of all, let's go, to, uh, let's go to verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they put the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And so th picture this. You have these 450 prophets, perhaps joined by 400 more of the prophets of Ashtoreth. You have all the people looking on. Most of them believe that this is probably a legit thing, having become deluded by the idolatry of the day. You have one man against a multitude, one man against a powerful king and queen, one man against 850 false prophets, one man against the nation. Well, not exactly. It wasn't just one man. It was one man who believed in the one true God. So they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. You see, Baal had a mouth carved in a statue, but no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. You see the picture here? They had grown so tired in their frantic, idolatrous worship that they were running low on energy. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, verse 27, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Would the shedding of their own blood accomplish their own salvation? Absolutely not. Would they serve as a legitimate sacrifice to the false gods so that he might answer their entreaty for fire? No. Verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah, again, all by himself, took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. 
They did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. You see here, although the entire nation was under the grip and delusion of idolatry, and it was supported by the king and queen themselves. And it, they had acquired for themselves hundreds and hundreds of priests. And the persecution was such that the true prophets of God had to hide and to flee for their own lives in many cases. Nevertheless, there came a day when God demonstrated His sovereignty. Why could this come to pass the way it did through one unlikely prophet at this time of incredible social pressure and great apostasy? It happens because... Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. And, I, and Elijah cried out to him in the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 115, Not to us, not to me, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? The heart of Psalm 115 is applied in the actions of Elijah at that showdown. And God answered and proved unequivocally, that Baal has no ears, eyes, nor feet, that Ashtoreth has no way to walk, to make a sound, to hear, or to smell. And all who believe as much basically surrend their faculties and become useless and become something like zombies, the living dead, who really have not served their purpose and have stunted their own spiritual growth and understanding, have deluded themselves, and a darkness and a blindness of sin has fallen upon them until such time God would wake them up for the proclamation of His Word and Gospel. Threefold entreaty. First is call to glorify. The second is a call to trust. Now notice, this is directed towards the people of God. The remnant yet remaining, verses 9 through following. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He goes further to say, The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. A call to trust the Lord. Directed towards us. Who are the trustees? Those who are called to trust the Lord. Well, they are listed in three categories. Israel. Uh, the house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. These are interesting categories, and by way of prophetic um, anticipation, they include us. Israel, you could think of the heirs of Abraham, the ethnic house of Israel, those who were set apart in the culture and the promises of the covenant of Moses and so forth. They were called to trust in the Lord because He is their help and their shield. But more than this, among them the priests also, 
priests, those of the line of Aaron, are called to trust the Lord. Don't place faith in anything else in the Lord. Even though you're called to be a leader or some influence, nevertheless, do not trust in yourself or exalt yourself. Priests, those of the house of Aaron, trust the Lord. And those who fear the Lord, this could include those who have turned to the, to God, to the one true God, even from other nations. So there are a few likely at this time, but more would join them. Yes, even unto the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. We, in this sense, are converts. We are proselytes, if you will. That means people who have converted to religion that was not ethnically theirs to begin with. Thus, from heirs to priests to proselytes, behold, trust in the Lord. The psalmist entreats us to look to Him as our help and our shield. We, proselytes, if you will, we, those who fear the Lord, yet so many years and so many nations removed from this original context, nevertheless, are addressed in Psalm 115 prophetically. And now we hear this call, this entreaty, and we hear it and we turn as the Spirit gives ability to the Lord. Who do we turn to? We turn to the one who has demonstrated his trustworthiness in the following ways, help and shield. Again, three times reiterated. He is their help and their shield. Trust in the Lord, O house of Aaron. He is their help and their shield. And those who fear the Lord, He is their help and their shield. Think of it this way, help referring to provision. Everything that is necessary to assist us in this life. Everything from our salvation eternally, the bread of life, to our daily bread, that which we need to sustain us in the meantime. Help, provision. Think of shield as protection. That which guards us against the enemies of our souls, the world, the flesh, and the devil, ultimately speaking, but also in the context of history, enemies of God's people who surrounded God's servants at the time. Think of the prophets of Baal versus Elijah. Think of in uh, the enemies of Assyria versus Hezekiah and God's people at the time when the Ramshakeh was giving his false proclamations. So during these times, we are to look to the Lord, everyone, from heir to priest to proselyte, who is our provision and our protection. And by the way, this is a great test for who is your God. Ask yourself, who do you most substantially rely on for your protection? Who makes you feel the most safe? Where do you invest your hope and security for the future? Ask yourself, where do you turn and what do you most rely on and who gives you the reassurance that your needs are be provided for? Where you look for provision and protection, ultimately speaking, that is your God. That's one measure of ultimate or highest authority. During the time of Elijah, they were looking to Baal, this construct in the minds of the heathen, and they would dance around an altar and cut themselves so that it would rain or dance around an altar and ask for him to answer in fire, a manifestation of great glory of Astrid or Baal. Maybe if we cut ourselves a little more, if maybe dance a little harder, and so forth and so on. What were they doing? They were looking to their idols for provision and for protection. In this case, especially provision because God had struck the land with famine. God will strike our land and perhaps He is right now with economic privation in some sense. There's going to be challenges as I judge it, even as there are some now in the economic vitality of America. Where will we turn for the promise of economic hope? Will we turn to the next administration who says it's going to be jobs, jobs, jobs? We turn to the government. I submit to you that the government, the collective, represented by our legislators who have the power of lawmaking that we've granted to them as a democracy and so on and so forth, 
these individuals as a class is probably the number one idol in America today because we look to the government to protect us from our enemies abroad, especially the rising threat of China or a nuclear-armed Kim Jong something something in North Korea, I forget his last name, the monosyllabic tyrant, monosyllabic tyrant, Kim Jong-un. And then, so we look at these uh, dangers on the periphery of America and we think, oh, you know, who will provide us protection? We need to fund the military. Who will give us provision? We need uh, welfare and security and stimulus checks and all of this. Be careful. Where you look for provision and protection is a measure of ultimate allegiance and who is your God. And we are called to trust. The threefold entreaty in Psalm 114 is for God to glorify himself. And secondly, for us to trust in him. Thirdly, for us to bless him. Why are we to trust him? Why are we to bless him? Because he is trustworthy. He is responsible for our daily bread, as the Lord's Prayer itself proclaims. And He is the one alone who ultimately will protect us from our enemies. And one thinks of the 23rd Psalm as a picture of that promise as well. Now we are to call to trust Him, especially given the fullness of His blessing towards us. And this fullness is expounded in verses 12 and following. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel and bless the house of Aaron. So there is a blessing of the Lord, undeserved favor. His mercy, His grace towards us is prophesied. The fullness of His blessing is illustrated in that there are uh, blessings that are um, remembered. The Lord has remembered us, past blessings. There's blessings that are prophesied. He will bless again, heir, priest, and proselyte in the future. So past blessings, future blessings. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. His blessing extends to all. From the least of the significant to the greatest, these are blessings that are petitioned. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. There's a prayer for blessing here. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The fullness of blessing, blessings of the past, blessings prophesied in the future, blessings petitioned, and blessings proclaimed once again, reinforce our call to trust. You've heard the old adage, it's become a cliche, count your blessings. But don't let the cliche status obscure its truth. If we were really to take a ledger, a notebook, and write down every undeserving favor that God has granted to us, every mercy that he's extended to us, everything that he has given us by way of provision and protection, if we had the ability to recount them all, I would challenge you to find enough pages in your own stack of notebooks in your house or the reams of copy paper by your printer. I challenge you to have enough paper to record them all. And this is proof that God is trustworthy. This should be referred to as His past trustworthiness towards us, especially in the blessings of salvation. But that's not all. There are blessings yet promised in the future which will eclipse that which we've experienced so far, so overwhelming that tongue can't even fully describe this side of glory, nor mind fully imagine this side of heaven, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And speaking of protection, the New Testament goes on to expound in even greater depths that neither height nor depth nor principality nor power nor things past nor things present nor things to come, nothing in heaven and on earth can separate us from the love of God. And this love is extended to us through Jesus Christ to both small and great. Therefore, he is trustworthy. Therefore, trust him. A call to glorify, a call to trust, and finally, a call to bless. 
How are we to respond in light of these truths? Well, certainly to worship the Lord. The psalm closes this way, 16 through 18. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. If He has given us all the earth, if that's part of His blessings towards us, how ought we use it? How ought we steward the realms and the domain that God has granted to us? Well, certainly to bless Him back, right? Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do they go down, uh, nor do any who go down into silence. In contrast to that, verse 18. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is an entreaty. This is a call to bless the Lord. Again, that's extended to us. Especially considering, considering our creational inheritance, if you will. The fact that the Lord has given us this good earth, even though it is marred by fallenness and sin. Nevertheless, the blessings of even the created realm are so incredible that we ought to use them as worthy and ready instruments to worship Him. Should not the heirs and stewards of this world bless the Lord who has given us these amazing gifts? Secondly, we are called to bless Him given this creational inheritance, but also we can draw by way of the context of the psalm how to bless the Lord. So as opposed to those whose faculties are enslaved and disabled by idolatry, the living bless the Lord with the very things that the ungodly can't. In other words, how are we to bless the Lord? We just go right back through the list of what the idolaters cannot use. And these are our instruments of blessing. We have mouths, and when we serve the purpose for which we are created, we speak blessings of the Lord. Speaking, how do we speak blessings uh, to the Lord? We do this when we confess our dependence on Him in praise and in worship. We do it when we read the Word aloud to our families. We do it when we testify to God saving us to our unbelieving neighbor, let's say. This is the way that we use our mouth to speak blessings to the Lord. What are some other instruments of blessing? Eyes. When we behold the glory of God revealed in the nature that He has created, that evidences His handiwork and His sovereign ingenuity, we bless the Lord with our sight. Our ears, when we listen to the Word of God proclaimed, when we set our attention upon the things that uh, are glorious and established in His Word and proclaim and pronounce His beauty and His excellence and His power to save and His judgments over the wicked and so on and so forth, we bless the Lord. Our noses, when we smell, and this might sound like a funny one, how do we smell to the glory of God? How do we bless the Lord with our sensory organs like smell? Well, smell is very closely related to taste. They tell me if you can't smell, you can't really taste. I know that to be the case in a sinus you know, issue or whatever. At the Lord's table, God has designed a sovereign means of communication that incorporates your sensory organs. You can smell the bread. You can smell the juice. And when you do, when you taste those things, when you smell those things, you are using, yes, even these faculties to bless the Lord. Father, I understand that just as these items sustain me physically, the bread that you supply and the juice that I'm drinking now, so you have supplied to me the very bread of life that is necessary for my eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the cup and the juice represent those elements. And as we taste and smell them, we are blessing the Lord even at His table. We have, they have hands but do not feel, not so with us. We are not like the dead who can't do anything useful with their hands. We are not like living zombies who don't do anything useful with their ears except listen. Well, that's not useful at all. But instead corrupt their, their ears through the intake of the false claims that culture speaks uh, in their hearing. We are not like the walking dead, the zombies, who have mouths but 
Do not speak anything worthwhile. We're not like the dead or those who go down in silence who have hands, but do nothing useful with them. No, we're capable of blessing the Lord with our hands. If you gather up some uh, garage sale items and put them in the back, I know it sounds fairly trivial. Nevertheless, the gathering of garage sale items to sell to raise money for overseas missions is a way to bless the Lord with your hands. If you clean off a little bit of the rust on that you know, grill that we put back there, which kind of needs it, by the way, so if some of your young people want to do that, and get that grill ready to be sold, that's one example among many of articles that you can set your hands to do something about. You are blessing the Lord with your hands, with your feet and with your throat, uh, just the same. In other words, what are the instruments of blessing? Speech, sight, hearing, smelling, handiwork, travels, communication. We are called to bless the Lord with all of these. These are faculties that are handicapped and suspended if we are merely idolaters. They serve no useful purpose. We're like walking dead before we come to the Lord. But when we come to Him, when we are regenerate, He ransoms, redeems, and uses all of these things to His glory through His people who are being sanctified into His image. Finally, we have our eternal life purpose given to us in the final verse. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. No, this is in contrast to verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down to silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So putting these two together, what can we conclude? The dead do not praise the Lord, but we will praise the Lord forever. Therefore, we finish the syllogism. Again, the dead do not praise the Lord. We will praise the Lord forever. Therefore, we will live forever. Eternal life. Very good. So Psalm 115 presumes eternal life. And the author knows, just like Abraham had faith of resurrection, glory beyond the grave, so Psalm 115 closes with the hope of resurrection, glory beyond the grave. He understands, the author does, and all who sing with him, that their eternal purpose is found in praising the Lord, blessing him, trusting in him, and seeking his glory, first and foremost, forever and ever. What well, we are participating in here and applications of blessing the Lord that we've talked about a few. These are just a foretaste of our eternal call. And this makes even more sense when we consider the hero of the Hallel Psalms. Remember, this set of Psalms celebrates deliverance from a tyrant or from a condition of slavery unto the promises of God in the place, of his in the place that he has prepared. And as we see that picture fully or manifest and fulfilled in the New Testament, we recognize that the greatest deliverance of all is freedom from sin. Through the prophet and the priest and the king who ushers us there, not Moses, but a greater one than him, Jesus, unto the place that God has prepared, restored fellowship, communion with him, both now and forever, and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. In this sense, in the full scope of history, from that big picture perspective, Jesus Christ is the hero of the Hallel Psalms. In order for verse 18 to come to pass, for eternal life to be granted to those who will bless him forever, Jesus must come and die. And he did. He came, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected and ascended, and he even now rules and reigns forever at the right hand of the Father. So when we sing this song, when we recount these words, when we study this uh, psalm in all its fullness, we have a perspective even greater still when we find that the, that the fulfillment, uh, the terms for its fulfillment are actually ours in Christ our Lord. Taking all that to heart, I pray that we would apply this verse 
and that we would arise from our slumbers of discouragement or otherwise and place our focus and attention on the priority, the glory of the Lord that would move us to trust in Him and to bless Him with all that we are. Let us close and ask for the Lord's help in this. Father, we thank You for the grace and the mercy that has revealed Your truth to us through the pages of Your Scripture. We pray that You would move us to heed the call, the entreaty of the psalmist in Psalm 115, to keep as our foremost priority Your glory and to recognize that our hope hinges upon it and furthermore to bless You as a result and to trust in You along the way that You might be glorified in Your church. I pray, Lord, that the echoes and the absurd cries of the idolaters in our land, the Baal and the Asterisk worshipers who cut themselves the deeper and scream all the louder, would not deter us, even though we may feel outnumbered, from proclaiming the glory of Yahweh, even now, even today. We pray that as we do so, you would see fit in your grace to cause Baal and Asterisk worshipers of this day and age to bow their knees and to repent of their sin and to place faith in Jesus Christ, and then to join us in serving your glory, in trusting in the one true God, and to bless you with the rest of our lives, as many days as you tarry, and even on into eternity, giving the Hallel songs of praise and offering to you, the Hallel psalms and others of praise and worship forever and ever without end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.